Hi, I'm Ray, a storyteller, educator, mom, and your host of Homeroom, an international podcast bridging the education gap between the classroom and the living room. Growing up, my single immigrant mom was so busy working multiple jobs to make ends meet, she couldn't afford to give me a lot of her time. So she relied on schools to teach me everything about how to succeed in life. But under-resourced and over-standardized, our one-size-fits-all education system had other priorities. In this liminal space of unmet expectations, I fell into a blind spot. Homeroom is my attempt to figure out why. In this first season, I speak with people in all walks of life from around the world about their own experiences with their education systems. I want to know what worked, what didn't, and what ideas they have on improving it for our next generation. In this episode, I speak with Christine, a storytelling consultant, educator, and thus unsurprisingly, a voracious reader, about her journey from attending a Swiss boarding school when she was younger, attending university in the United States, and raising her children in the Netherlands. We talk about how life on the road had impacted her sense of identity and what she did to reclaim her story as its protagonist. Here is our edited conversation. (laughs) I was a really serious kid, very, very serious kid. Um, took life very seriously, too seriously was the thing my mom was always telling me. And when it came to school, I mean, I, I just worked hard. I was, I went to a boarding school and I had a, I had a sheet of like my goals that I would put up in my room by my desk. And I remember people kind of like, oh, Christine, who has goals? That's so weird. But it was, you know, I grew up in a home. My dad was in the military when I was a kid. My mom was an immigrant who uh, never really did enough language training to be able to hold a job where language would be part of what she had to do. So she, you know, when she wrote a letter for school, I would proofread it from the time I was about eight on for spelling and things like that. So education was the thing that was going to change everything. It was the only thing that mattered. And so I just did that the best I could. Um, But I was a really sad kid and I was really serious kid. Um, I looking back, I think there's a, a massive uh, physical genetic component. Like I was a 12 year old who was like, I wouldn't want to bring people into a world like this. That's dark. <laughs> That's really dark. Um, but I went through a period between the ages of 13 and 14. It was less than two calendar years. I moved from the town I grew up in, South Dakota, Rapid City, South Dakota. We, my dad had a job in Saudi Arabia. We've been waiting for visas. So in like January, we moved from Rapid City to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And in August, Saddam Hussein bombed Kuwait. And a few days later, my dad's company evacuated us from Kuwait. And we ended up in the Seattle area, Tacoma. And me and my mom and my sister stayed there for a school year watching the news a whole lot. My dad was in the Riyadh airport the day the ground war started, supposed to fly to see us, but that got canceled. And he did eventually make it. He's fine. We went to Kauai. It was really cool. Got a really bad sunburn. My back was peeling for ages. And uh, at the end of the year, we were going to fly through Taiwan again over back to uh, Riyadh. 
we got a phone call. My mom got a phone call less than a week before we were going to leave, letting her know that her brother was in the hospital and very, very sick. So instead of having like the last day of school going away thing, we were all planning, we were like, we're leaving on Saturday. And so got rid of all this like rental furniture and stuff that we'd accumulated to live in this apartment for a year. And me and my sister, my mom hopped on a plane, flew to Taipei, went straight to the hospital, watched my uncle die, and then like spent two or three weeks in Taiwan doing things and flew back to Riyadh. My mom flew, but had to go back to Taiwan for the wedding because there's this, there's a whole thing about, or not the wedding, the funeral. Because uh, there's a whole thing about when funerals happen that's complicated and there's a horoscopes and stuff involved. And mom came back and within weeks I was supposed to go to boarding school and I, my, they messed up my visa. So I couldn't fly on the same day as like the eight kids from my compound who were going. So my mom's getting on the phone, like someone has to fly with my daughter and found someone to fly with me, which was really good. And, uh, he, out of the kindness of his heart, uh, tried to hold my hand as the plane took off. And I was like, what, what's happening? <laughs> Uh, and when I arrived at the school, there was no, like, I had missed orientation. All the kids were out doing something. And basically, they dropped me off at the front door of the main building with my suitcase and my stuff. And they were like, oh, welcome. You're going to be living up the hill down the road there. Go ahead. And so I went up there. On, I, I remember going by myself up there. And I entered the building I was going to be living in. And there was just no one there. And it was, it was like a hotel that looked like it was semi stuck in the 1970s and they were using it for, for residents, for the girls. Um, it was fine. I lived there for three years. There wasn't anything horribly wrong with it, but just as a, like, you're going to a Swiss boarding school. This was not what I expected. And I remember sitting in the entrance there thinking, you know, if I can just learn to never expect anything ever again, I won't ever be disappointed like this. I was 14. So I think like a lot of stuff fell apart on me. And I, that, you know, it's the 1990s. No one's like getting you to see, getting you to see anybody. My parents were far away. They were dealing with a lot of their own stuff. It's not easy to have your family suddenly in the Middle East and split up. And my uncle had passed away and it was just a hard thing. And I never really found a way to cope with it. Yeah, that's really, really tough. I'm so sorry. You were 13, 14. Yeah. That's like such a, um, I mean. I it's a tender it's, age, right? It's a very tender it, it's, age. It's just like you have no, you, you're like physically big enough that people think you can handle things. But emotionally, you're, you're so much a child still and you need to be so protected. Um, but I was going, you know, my dad was in Saudi the whole time. And I, it was like me and my mom and my sister and I'm the older sister. And so, you know, I got promoted a little bit in, re in responsibility. Um, so everyone was doing the best they could, but it was just hard. Yeah. And you know, like, okay, this thing that you just said about like people doing their best, but it was hard. Um, that sort of triggered something in me, like this idea of, when 
when the best, right, when doing your best is not good enough or mm-hmm. when you're doing your best leaves a lot of trauma or a lot of scars because you don't have, you know, the faculties, the tools to deal with that overwhelm. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, when do you think you found, like, the tools that you needed to actually tell yourself, okay, what I'm going through, I'm not alone, or, you know, that I'll be okay. Um, Or like, you know, at what point did you stop living on survival fumes? You know what I mean? 2017. (laughs) So a little while later. (laughs) What do you think happened in 2017? 2017, I went to my... GP and asked him to put me on antidepressants and he was like, well, very, very good GP. I liked him a lot. And he was like, well, I feel like there's more. Would you like to tell me what's going on? And essentially I was like, well, you know, life has been crazy. And I know that this one thing really affected me. And I ended up telling him this story and he had a student with him who was, you know, she, is she okay here? Yeah, yeah, she's fine. So I tell my story to him and the student, um, it was really raw then. I couldn't tell it without crying. It was just not possible at that point. And he just looked at me afterwards and he was like, I've got goosebumps. Hmm. Like, maybe maybe you need to do something with this. Um, and was really instrumental and helpful in helping me find a therapy that helped you know it wasn't I'd seen cognitive therapist before and I had told him point blank I'm not going to go see another person who tells me like to work on my thinking and my feeling and my actions because fuck them <laughs> that's not what that's I don't need to like learn to behave better I need to feel not miserable all the time um and so I ended up doing something called haptotherapy which seems to be a Dutch concept um, and it's, it has to do with like people touching you, but not in weird ways, but yes, very weird. So if I had an hour long session, there would be like half an hour of me bitching about whatever was on my mind, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then she would say, okay, well, let's, what, let's, let's, let's do some work. <laughs> okay. So in the beginning, it was like me laying down fully clothed on a massage bed. And she would like put a hand on the back of my head. I'd be like, how does that feel? That feels fucked up, by the way. Mm. It does not feel good. And so there were all kinds of weird, like, okay, if I, what if I put my hand here? What, what's, and it was, it was weird. Like, you know, if, if acupuncture is finding energy points and accessing them, this was like finding emotion points mm. and just stuff would come pouring out and, you know, it would put me in a time or a place or in a person and thinking about things. And it, progressed from there at one point it was her she would she would have me sit down so I'd be sitting on the edge of this bed and she would come and sit next to me and then like flop her leg on top of my leg like she was sitting cross-legged and she would just be like put her you know one leg up on a knee and flop her leg on top of mine and you're just like oh what and she would say you know she'd say um how is that for you uh all right I guess I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. What do you want? 
I'd like you to move your leg. All right, why don't you ask me? Oh, and I would cry. Mm-hmm. And I would cry at telling a woman who was very sweet and very kind, would you please take your leg off of mine? But I hadn't like no energy for myself, right? I had been like bending and swaying and moving to make sure everything around me was always flowing and there was no me left. And so this was a part of like, okay, there has to be a me and me doesn't have to put up with everything. I've been an immigrant for most of my life. You know, I was in the Netherlands for a long time and it didn't feel welcome for a long time. And I spent many, many years thinking it was a me issue, but this allowed me to finally be like, you know what, actually some stuff is not okay with me. And then you start getting on a roll, you know, and I've had other kinds of help and it's been important and, uh, but it's, it's made a huge difference. And also I left the Netherlands and it was hard for me to be there. So that was good. I was dealing with a lot of really latent racism and people making a lot of comments on my lifestyle, which bothered me. And when I say lifestyle, I mean like, shouldn't you be speaking to your children in Dutch when you're in public? Like, not, I wasn't doing weird stuff. <laughs> um, and, and that I just, I couldn't do it. It was 10 years of everyone thinking that I needed to hear their opinion about me. Wow. I have never heard of haptotherapy. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> no, but I, as you were explaining your experience, I just thought, oh my goodness, like, you know, so like in Eastern medicine, we talk about how like the emotions, the spirit, the the body, it's all connected. And it's mm-hmm. only in Western medicine that it's like, okay, we're going to separate, right, your physical mm-hmm. symptoms. And we're not even going to talk about what's going on for you emotionally or, you know, mentally. Um, but, and so right now, but like, we will I'm, do mindfulness. Yes, exactly. We're just going to ignore everything that's happened. And we're just going to positively, toxically think gratitude and, you know, like, I don't know, it doesn't work for me, but you know, like when I think about what you had to go through, right. To actually gain your power back, mm-hmm. to actually take your agency back you had to be physically abused. I wasn't abused. I wasn't abused at all. Like, but I had to be put in, I had like, uh, when we, when someone makes you emotionally uncomfortable, we have all kinds of things our brains do to get us out of it. True. That we can hide from the other person. Mm. But if she made me physically uncomfortable, the only way to get out of it the silent degree, you know, the agreement for me as a, as a, as a client and her as a therapist is for me to say, please move your leg. Yeah. And so all it's just, it's taking, I've never thought about it like this before. And I really like it. I wasn't able to hide behind whatever my head could do anymore. And that was brilliant. Cause then you talk about, you know, the kind of head that can hold as many thoughts and simultaneously going in all the directions that my head can do, I can beat three personalities in one. That's not so hard, but please move your leg. That's tough. Yeah. And I just think that there's like so much triumph in that, 
You know, mm. like I can see you being physically empowered, um, you know, to become the protagonist of your story, right? To be the hero yeah. of your own story, um, having gone through, because, you know, like our bodies are what contains us, that separates us from another person, right? And so like you really needed a like physical reminder that what is contained within your body is yours and that nobody can access that. That's so beautiful. Because I remember like the first time that I met you, uh, we were talking on a panel together about, right, um, how to get your power back or how to mm. take ownership of your own story. And um, you said some amazing things that blew my mind. You said that, you know, heroes don't actually, they're not heroes at the start of their story. They actually have to go through their trials and tribulations and be met with challenge before they can actually do something about their lives and show that they are the hero of their story. And so when I remember, I, I was listening to what you said, and I was just like, when are you going to stop playing victim and actually use your voice to talk about your own story and, you know, not subscribe to the narrative that was written for you? It really got my, like, gears thinking. Um, and it really shifted my trajectory, really. It altered my trajectory in thinking about you know, me actually being the protagonist of my life. And you talking about the haptotherapy, I was just like, that blew my mind. Um, because for some reason in my mind, it got written that Christine just knew about the the hero and how to be the hero her entire life. I didn't even think of you as a person, right? To be like, what happened to you that made you actually become the hero of your story? But how did you actually finally cross over? And by the time I had met you in 2020, how had you, you know, gone through that hero makeover in just three years? <laughs> First of all, very embarrassing. Don't call me hero. Okay. Um, Second, in response to what you said about living the narrative that someone wrote for you, no one wrote you a narrative. All they gave you was a blank piece of paper with script at the top. And you, like everything that we imagine is there is what we imagine is there, but we have to write our own stories. And it's hard because we start with nothing, right? We start with literally nothing. We have no idea what life is. And from there, we're supposed to build something. So you have been living your own narrative, but we assume rules about the worlds that we're in that maybe aren't always true. It's almost like we're living in, it's like world building, right? We build these worlds for ourselves that maybe aren't really true. They're just in our heads and we live in that world, but we don't have to. Um, so that was the first thing. The second thing is, how did I become a hero? Jesus. That was a mistake. It was a huge mistake. Oh, no. They were like red pill, blue pill. I was like, do you have purple? 
Um, the irony, 2020, yeah, I know what's going on then. So the irony is that I became a hero by embracing an identity as a woman of color in the sense that I had spent all these years in the Netherlands with people saying stuff to me. I'm like, wow. Ugh. Um, and at one point it was too much. So um, whoever is listening to this cannot see my face. My face is gorgeous. You are so lucky you're not seeing it because you'd be distracted, not able to hear anything I'm saying. Um, but people have said to me things like, you know, you look Chinese, right? And I'm like, eh, I just look like me. Um, my father is uh, American, super Caucasian. Uh, my mother is Taiwanese. Uh, I'm one of those kids born in the 70s from the Asian Asian mom military dad generation. There's like 17 of us. We all know each other. <laughs> and that generation doesn't exist in Europe. That didn't happen. So they're not used to seeing people my age who look like me. And people say all kinds of weird shit to you. Um, I was brought up with a mother who had immigrated in 1971 <laughs> to Goldsboro, North Carolina. And she survived by, yeah, the same way actually a lot of women have survived a lot of things, which is smile, nod, and just ignore, try to ignore it. Um, and so I spent my whole life trying to smile, nod, and ignore it. But people in the Netherlands are a bit more aggressive than Americans. <laughs> and I had a lot more education and I had studied post-colonial theory and identity theory. and it wasn't working for me. Uh, what happened is one day my kid came out of his classroom. He was probably in the third grade and I was standing in the school here waiting for him. And he did that thing where kids can like hold themselves together until they see you and then they fall apart. Mm -hmm. And my kid walked over and his head came down, his forehead came right against my chest. And he was like, now I understand how, now I understand how people felt during segregation. I was like, whoa. What had happened? He cried. That line came later. He cried. And he explained to me that they were supposed to put on, create a play in their class, just a short one for whatever reason. And someone had said to him, you have big ears and dark skin. You should play the monkey. Now, the big ears, no dispute. Kids got ears that, st ears that stick out. We all know it. He knows it. It's a conversation. Fine. The dark skin thing, that wasn't right to him. So we went, um, I was very lucky. We had to go to a ballet class and there was a nanny who brought a girl to ballet there. She was black from South Africa and she and I had a good relationship already. And so we talked about a few things and she validated his experience. And, you know, it gave us a lot to think about. Within a couple of weeks, I, w I had a conversation with the parents of his best friends the moms. And I don't know now what I expected out of that conversation. Um, but what ended up happening was when I tried to explain to them that I do not like people asking me why my skin is this color. I do not like people asking me, where are you really from? I do not like people asking me, where are your ancestors? And I really don't like it when people who have power to make decisions over my children say things like, what are you? I knew there was something. Um, and 
where I was hoping for some kind of understanding, what I got was, but it's a compliment. And don't you, like, it spiraled into someone saying to me, but what do you see when you look in the mirror? And I was like, well, this is a dark place and I don't want to be here anymore. And I'm done. And that, that was, it, that was another big turning point. I was just done, 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 done trying to like live the way the Dutch needed me to live so that I could like fit into their thing. And it's not all the Dutch, please. I lived in a small, I lived in a place where it was mostly white. It's the Eastern side of the country. It's not Rotterdam. It's not, it's not a city. It's not a big city. And I speak Dutch fluently. I'd been there for 17, like all the things. There was no reason for me to be making assumptions about what was going on. I could hear what people were saying to me and exactly what they were saying. And I could express myself well. Um, but after that conversation, I was done. It's like, I do not belong here. And I'm tired of trying to like minimize myself so that I can belong here. I started seeking out expat groups for the first time. Uh, I got involved with some more of the intercultural stuff, which is how we met along the road. Uh, and I met some people that helped me to realize that I am not one of those white girls. I was a failed white girl for a long time. Mm-hmm. I'm still failed Taiwanese, but I'm just not a white person. And I'm never going to be treated like one, right? Like I was continually thinking I could put myself in these situations where everyone was white, but me, and maybe no one would notice. Mm. And then like shocked that people were pointing it out because I was looking at myself in the mirror every day, briefly, I'm not a mirror person. And then like walking out the door and not realizing that my face doesn't look like other people's. My skin isn't the same color. I remember I went to UNC Chapel Hill and in the spring in Chapel Hill, the like the, the lawn is covered with people tanning. Yeah. And I distinctly remember a moment when I walked across and saw all these like tanning bodies thinking, oh, I'll never have a tan that color and not understanding why, like maybe if I use a different lotion, <laughs> but like it, where it took me a minute to be like, I'll never have that color. Oh, cause I'm not that color. And that was like a process while I was walking. <laughs> Um, but it, it's, it's just that and it, and it's a different time, right? Like I grew up in the eighties and that was a time when the ideal was to be as white as possible and it wasn't valued to be different. Okay. So I recently heard, um, do you know Donald Miller is? He wrote New story brand. Yes. Right. I was listening to something he said recently, um, and he was talking about his childhood trauma. And and the insight was um, that if you can find a way to take your childhood trauma and make sure and find a way to make sure that it never happens to somebody else, that, that you can use your trauma as jet fuel to find ultimate success. And so like, you know, he kind of talks about, right, um, in Story Brand, like, you know, there's the hero, the villain, uh, the guide, and the victim, right? And the hero and the villain have exactly the same backstory, that something terrible happened to them. But the villain says, you know, what happened to me, I'm going to make sure it happens to somebody else. And the hero says, nobody ever again. 
Right. And, um, and I've just been thinking like, why have I been a victim my entire life? And like, I, I, I w- didn't have enough energy to quite go to hero or to villain. You know, I just, you know, like, I just didn't You're have like, that. I'm just going to wallow. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. I'm going to, I'm going to feel sorry for myself. I'm going to, and, um, and it, it wasn't an, until I, you know, until therapy that I realized, okay, self-compassion, I can't have empathy for somebody else if I don't have empathy for myself. Um, and so, I'm kind of at this like crossroads where I'm like, okay, you know what? I learned how to have self-compassion for myself. I finally have empathy for myself. And that's why I have true empathy for other people now because I've been able to empathize with myself and understand what I've been through. But now I'm like at this other crossroads of being like, okay, am I going to go hero or am I going to go villain? Um <laughs> Be a villain. Do it. <laughs> right. But I'm trying to figure out how to get myself on the track where I can be a hero, not just for myself, but for other people. And um, not in like a Marvel kind of sense, but, you know, more of like a everyday like mother or like teacher kind of sense of like, how do I guide other people to not feel alone or feel um, like there's something wrong with them if they, you know, don't identify with the majority, whether it's like culture or, you know, neurodivergence or whatever it is, language. Um, and so, you know, I've been wondering, like, you being this amazing storyteller uh, who is a voracious reader, probably reads a book every day, um, and like knows classic structure, story structure, like, you know, as well as, you know, I don't know, something like your children or something. Um, I'm just wondering for you, like, how do we decide to become a hero? How do we actually go and become a hero of our story? How do we actually, um, you know, cross over? So, one of my big, I don't believe in psychologizing the hero's journey. Mm. So that's part of it. Um, and this is why the hero's journey is a story told outside the story after the story. Right. Oh, wow. You just blew my mind. Hey, right. How can you psychologize something that's outside and after? You can't decide to become a hero. A hero doesn't decide to become a hero. They just do the thing they think is right over and over and over again. That's amazing. That's really amazing. And I think that's all, right? That's all we can ask of ourselves. And if we're doing that, if however big or small that is, if you're doing the thing you think is right over and over again, you're probably going to do really good stuff in the world. Even if it's not on a scale anyone else can ever measure. Thank you for tuning into our conversation. I met Christine in 2020 
while on a panel conversation with other women across multiple continents. While talking about the importance of reclaiming our power from oppressive systems, Christine said something that blew my mind. She said, heroes aren't heroes at the start of their journeys. They earn this title over the course of their story. And although I had been a storyteller for decades, even having gone to film school, I never had this insight. In fact, I remember while writing the script for my thesis film, one of my advisors told me that my main character didn't act like a protagonist. Observations from my peers were similar. Interesting things happened to my character, but she didn't do anything interesting to push her story forward. There's a saying that people can only help you as much as they can help themselves. And I could not help my character be a protagonist of her story because I was not the protagonist of mine. I had spent my entire life living under inherited rules and goals that were passed down to me by my culture, by my family, by the expectations from teachers and bosses, books and media. But what were my dreams? Why was I not living my own? My dependence on these narratives held me in captivity, making me think I was a victim in my own body. For years, I wondered why I had been cursed with a brain so inferior that I couldn't succeed in the ways my peers did at school, at work, in social situations, including family. For decades, I felt sorry for myself, wondering why I wasn't smarter, why things came easier to others and not to me, why I had to work 10 times harder than everyone else and still fall short of being normal. Then last year, I joined a community of storytellers and finally realized what protagonists do. They do something about their problems just by starting. And by actually starting homeroom, I began reclaiming my life as its main character. And in my story, schools don't measure our students based on their test scores and ability to conform to a uniform standard of success. We measure them on their ability to contribute to, survive in, and actively create a world that is safe, equal, and inclusive for everyone and not just those who are considered valuable to the economy. Thank you so much for listening. If any part of this episode resonated with you, please connect with us on social media at the links in the show notes. And if you'd like to share your own education journey with us on this podcast, 
please send me a DM on Instagram.